Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to Public Problems. I'm your host, uh, as usual, Justin Book, and today is Monday, February the 8th. Yeah, February the 8th, 2021, uh, 2021 that is. It is early. Uh, and we're doing the podcast live again here on Facebook Live. So those of you that are able to join us this morning, thanks for being here. Those of you watching the video later or uh, by audio listening, thanks for uh, following along those ways as well. All right, as you can see today, I'm back in my usual spot. And this morning, it is actually snowing, which is kind of exciting for me. So I have been watching it come down. It's act actively snowing this morning, so that's kind of exciting. Uh, so today, I have a few updates I want to share with you, and then I want to recap uh, some of the segments in previous weeks, and then share a segment with you this week, and talk about some things that are upcoming. All right? So, a couple of updates related to the podcast as we're getting started. This month in February is going to be the first month where I'm doing supporter events. So, those of you that have started supporting the podcast on Patreon, there are two events this month. One is as early as next week. Uh, it will be on Zoom. Uh, next Monday, we're going to do a live recording like this, except we'll be streaming from Zoom and Patreon supporters will be able to join with a Zoom link if they would like that morning. Also on February 25th, I'm going to do an Ask Me Anything session. Um, so supporters will get a link to a Zoom link then as well, and we'll get together and chat about anything that you would like. So those are the two events. If you are a Patreon supporter and you have not received the information on those, uh, please reach out to me and let me know. You should have received uh, messages and emails about those events already. Those are the only pre-updates, I think. Um, really enjoying getting into the routine of doing these on Monday morning with you, trying to work through any technical difficulties. It was brought to my attention last week that the live feed was a little quiet on your feeds out there, so I both turned my new microphone up and am trying to project a little bit more, which isn't typically a problem for me. So uh, any feedback is welcome. Please, you can feel free to reach out on our Facebook page as probably the easiest way or commenting on any of the posts for any feedback that you have. <clears throat> okay, so last week's segment, we took a break from some of the fiction work and I shared some of my work with you. Uh, a paper that I have at the American Review of Public Administration from 2019, a paper Artificial Intelligence, Discretion, and Bureaucracy, and shared a link with you that you could access that at. And this really lays out the argument for a lot of my recent academic research, trying to think about the ways in which new tools, new uh, machine intelligences, new artificial intelligences, the ways in which they're being used to make decisions in uh, organizations of all type, but particularly for government organizations. And this is going to be a reoccurring theme as we pair some fiction and some literature with um, academic and policy work, is trying to think about for um, government and for governance challenges 
how do we use these tools? How are we going to use AI and machine learning so that the governance control remains in the hands of human or are human-centered um, while making more use of these tools for the, for the benefits that they bring? So this is going to be something that comes up again and again, both in the context of artificial intelligence safety, which is a policy area we're going to be talking about, and as we think about the future of humans, their future exploration, particularly in, um, in space. Um, and so these are going to be another uh, policy area that we're going to be thinking about. So I hope you enjoyed um, getting some exposure to some of the academic work. Again, it was a little bit of an abridged reading. And if you'd like to uh, read the full version, the link uh, to a copy of it is available in last week's uh, podcast. All right. <clears throat> Two weeks ago, we checked back in with Odd John, John Wainwright, and kind of checked in at the middle of his story around chapter 10, his plight of humanity. And, and if you didn't join us for that reading, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Um, but even more so, if you haven't read the book, I encourage you to go find a copy of the book or purchase it on um, Audible. It's also uh, pleasant to listen to as well. And in chapter 10, John really shared with the narrator some of his frustrations with the limits of, of Homo sapiens and some of the things they struggle with at the individual level, and but a lot of the things that are societal problems that he was very critical of, things like remaining, uh, remaining poverty, uh, the ways in which people are misled, weaknesses in how we understand the mind, all of these things, and how those things lead to challenges for uh, Homo sapiens and for humanity. And this is also going to be a, a reoccurrent theme in, <clears throat> in both as we're exploring the challenges of using uh, humans versus machine intelligences within organizations to help improve society. Um, so this is going to be something that we, we visit with often. Um, John also has some spiritual critiques for us to consider. He has some criticisms of modern religion. He has some criticisms of materialism. Um, and those are there for you to explore as well and um, to think what they might say about your own kind of spiritual or and ethical developments and what matters to you and why and what matters to us as a society and why and how we prioritize these things and prioritize trade-offs across decisions that we have to make for society so um john give us some insight into that through the narrator this week i want to share the end of john's story um as portrayed in Odd John by Olaf Stapleton, and share the ending of this book with you. So it's a, it's a fairly short read, and um, that'll be that'll be the the segment for this week. And then we'll close today with talking a little bit about um, upcoming segments, so that you can be uh, be prepared and know what's coming down the pipe. So there's two: one that's more um, academic and policy related that we'll explore together, and one is going to be some additional uh, speculative fiction work uh, in the vein of Odd John that I'm going to be sharing with you as well. Okay, that's all the updates. That's all I have to get started. Let me check in with feed here.
All right. Okay. So with all of that in mind, today I'd like to do a brief reading for you from the book, Odd John, um, which was written, um, a story between Jest and Ernest, which was written by Olaf Stapleton. And actually, I'm not going to remember off the top of my head. I think it's 1935 is when this was published. Yeah, 1935. So it's a little dated. Um, in terms of the of the years there um, you'll notice this with some of the references um, and the ways in which the uh, the story comes about to a close okay with that i'm going to share with you chapter 22 um, which is the end um, which is the end of the story of odd john as written by olaf stapleton John was under no illusion that the colony had been saved. But if we could gain another three months' respite, he said, the immediate task which the islanders had undertaken would be finished. A minor part of this work consisted in completing certain scientific records, which were to be entrusted to me for the benefit of the normal species. There was also an amazing document written by John himself and purporting to give an account of the whole story of the cosmos. Whether it should be taken as a plain statement of fact or poetic fantasy, uh, I, I do not know. These various documents were now being typed, filed, and packed in wooden cases. For the time had come for my departure. If you stay much longer, John said, you will die along with the rest of us, and our, our records will be lost. To us it matters not at all whether they are saved or not but they may prove of interest to the more enlightened members of your own species. You had better not attempt to publish them till a good many years have passed and the governments have ceased to feel sore about us. Meanwhile, if you like, you can perpetuate the biography, as fiction, of course, since no one would believe it. One day, uh, one day we learned that a party of Tufts was being secretly equipped for our destruction by agents of certain governments, which I will not name. The wooden chests were loaded on the skid, along with my baggage. The whole colony assembled on the quay to bid me farewell. I shook hands with all of them in turn, and lo, to my surprise, kissed me. We do love you, Fido, she said. If they were all like you, domestic, there'd have been no trouble. Remember, when you write about us, that we loved you. Sambo, when his turn came, clambered from Ngunku to me, then hurriedly back again. I'd go with you if I wasn't so tied up with these snobs that I couldn't live without them. John's parting words were these. Yes, say in the biography that I loved you very much. I could not reply. Kimmy and Marianne, who were in charge of the skid, were already hauling in the mooring lines. We crept out the little harbor and gathered speed as we passed between the outer headlands. The double pyramid of the island shrank, faded, and soon was a mere cloud on the horizon. I was taken to one of the least important of the French islands, one on which there were no Europeans. By night, we unloaded the baggage in the in the dinghy and set it on a lonely beach. 
Then we made our farewells, and very soon the skid with her crew vanished into the darkness. When morning came, I went in search of natives and arranged for the transport of my goods and myself to civilization. Civilization? No, that I had left behind forever. Of the end of the colony, I know very little. For some weeks, I hung about in the South Seas trying to pick up information. At last, I came upon one of the hooligans who had taken part in the final scene. He was very reluctant to speak, uh, not only because he knew that to blab was to risk death, but also because the whole affair had evidently gotten on his nerves. Bribery and alcohol, however, loosened his tongue. The assassins had been warned to take no risks. The enemy, though in appearance juvenile, was said to be diabolically cunning and treacherous. Machine guns might be useful, and it would be advisable not to parley. A large and well-armed party of the, of the invaders landed outside the harbor and advanced upon the settlement. The islanders must have known telepathically that these ruffians were too base to be dealt with by their technique, which had been used on former invaders. <clears throat> Probably it would have been easy to destroy them by atomic disintegration as soon as they landed, though I remember being told that it was much more difficult to disintegrate the atoms of living bodies than of corpses. Apparently, no attempt was made to put this method in action. Instead, John seems to have devised a new and subtler method of defense. For according to my informant, the landing party very soon began to feel there were devils in the place. They were apparently seized with a nameless horror. Their flesh began to creep, their limbs to tremble. This was all the more terrifying because it was broad daylight and the sun was beating heavily down on them. No doubt the supernormals were making their presence felt telepathically in some grim and formidable manner or unintelligible to us. As the invaders advanced hesitatingly through the brushwood, this terrifying sense of some overmastering presence became more and, and more intense. In addition, they began to experience a crazy fear of one another. Every man cast sidelong glances of fright and hate at his neighbor. Suddenly, they all fell upon one another, using knives, firearms, teeth, and fingers. The brawl lasted only a few minutes, but several were killed and, and many were wounded. The survivors took to their heels and to the boats. For two days, the ship lay off the island while her crew debated violently among themselves. Some were for abandoning the venture, but others pointed out that to return empty-handed was well, was to go to certain destruction, for the great ones who had sent them had made it clear that though success would be generously rewarded, failure would be punished ruthlessly. There was nothing for it but to try again. Another landing party was organized and fortified with large quantities of rum. The result was the same as on the former occasion, but it was noticed that those who were most drunk were the least affected, and they were least affected by this sinister, horrible influence. The assassins took three more days to screw up their courage for another landing. 
The bodies of their dead comrades were still visible on the hillside. How many of the living were destined to join that ghastly company? The party made itself so drunk that it could hardly row the boats. It braced itself with uproarious song. Also, it, it carried the brave liquor with it in a keg. After the landing, the gruesome influence was again felt, but this time the invaders answered it with reinforcements of rum and revelry. Reeling, clinging together, dropping their weapons, tripping over roots and one another's feet, but defiantly singing. They advanced over the spur of hill and saw the harbor and the settlement beneath them. They floundered down the slope. One of them accidentally discharged a pistol into his own thigh. He collapsed, yelling, but the others rushed on. They stumbled into the presence of the supernormals who were gathered near the power station. There, the reeling assailants sheepishly came to a stand. By now, the effects of the rum were somewhat abated, and the sight of those strange beings, motionless, with their great calm eyes, seemed to have dismayed the assassins. Suddenly, they fled. For some days, they wrangled among themselves and kept to their ship. They dared not land again. They, they dared not sail. One afternoon, however, they were amazed to see a, a prodigious and dazzling spread of flame rise from behind the hill and light up land and sea. They followed a muffled roar which echoed from the clouds like thunder. The blaze died down, but it was followed by an even more alarming phenomenon. The whole island began to sink. Waves appeared to be clambering up the hills. Presently, the ship's anchor released itself from the sinking bottom and she was cast adrift. The island continued to descend and the sea swept in upon it, bearing the gyrating vessel over the tops of the sunken trees. The twin peaks were submerged. Converging currents met above their heads and reared a great spout of ocean. This liquid horn descending drove hills of water on outwards in all directions. The ship was overwhelmed. Her top hamper, boats, and most of her deck houses were torn away. Half the crew were lost overboard. This cataclysm apparently occurred on 15th of December, 1933. It may, of course, have been an effect of purely physical causes. Even when I first heard of it, however, I was inclined to think it was not. I suspected that the islanders had been holding their assailants at bay in order to gain a few days for the completion of their high spiritual task, or in order to bring it at least to a pivotal beyond, which was their, which was their, there was no hope of further advancement. I like to believe that during the final days after the repulse of their third landing party, they accomplished the same. They then decided, I thought, not to wait the destruction which was bound sooner or later to overtake them at the hands of the less human species, either through their brutish instruments or through the official great powers. The supernormals might have chosen to end their career by simply falling dead, but seemingly they desired to destroy their handiwork along with themselves. They would not allow their home and all their objects of beauty 
with which they had adorned it to fall into subhuman clutches. Therefore, they deliberately blew up their power station, thereby destroying not only themselves, but their whole settlement. I surmised further that this mighty convulsion might have spread downwards into the precarious foundations of the island, disturbing them so violently that the whole island collapsed. As soon as I had gleaned as much information as possible, I hurried home with my documentary treasures, wondering how I should give the news to Pax. It did not seem to me likely that she would have learned it already from John. When I landed in England, she and Doc met me. Her face showed me that she was prepared. At once, she said, you need not break the news gently, because we know the main part of it. John gave me visions of it. I saw those tipsy brutes routed by his power. And in a few days afterwards, I saw many happy things on the island. I saw John and Lowe walking together on the shore like lovers at last. One day I saw all the young people sitting in a paneled room, evidently their meeting room. I heard John say that it was time to die. They all rose and went away in couples and little groups and presently they gathered around the door of a stone building that I guess must have been their power station and Gunku went through the door carrying Sambo. Suddenly there was blinding light and, and noise and pain and then nothing. The end. That was the end of the end of chapter 22 of the end of the book, Odd John by Olaf Stapleton. So this is where Stapleton leaves this, uh, leaves this journey. Again, I, I strongly encourage you to purchase the book and read it or listen to the whole thing on Audible. Nigel Carrington reads it. It's a wonderful reading. It's also quite inspiring to me from a creativity standpoint. As you'll see, um, what's coming in the aftermath of uh, Odd John here is is a is a story about Low Wainwright, and this is the name of the fiction book that I'm currently working on. It's a bit of a of a sequel, playoff of Olaf Stapleton's uh, leaving his journey with John Wainwright and these characters, and. We're going to revisit with them about a hundred years later. Um, this is the setting for the Low Wainwright book that I've been writing. And as part of sharing that story with you here in the next few weeks, um, we're going to take a little bit of a, a break from these characters. Um, but I will be reading that book to you chapter by chapter as it's prepared. So I look forward to continuing a version of this story with you and um, hope that you enjoy it as well. That will be a reoccurring segment. Um, from the policy-oriented and from the academic side of these segments, um, I've decided that I want to spend some time 
introducing to you and focusing on the value alignment problem. The value alignment problem is something that has been described uh, in some detail in the AI, artificial intelligence safety community. It's something that I have been writing about in, uh, to the public administration community. And it's something that there are some current um, large-scale academic efforts to um, try to think about how to address this at different levels in society. How this aligning our values and implementing action for AI is a challenge for our society. It's a potential existential threat um, for our civilization and um, something that we need to think about critically and carefully. So we're going to be exploring this topic through uh, a number of different approaches. Um, but I encourage as an introduction to this to visit with two books that I'm going to be sharing some from as we move forward. One is Brian Christian's Value Alignment. And it, uh, it came out last year. Um, and let me pull it up here so I have the right, uh, the right details for you. Um, it is a value of the alignment problem, machine learning, and um, get the subtitles, machine learning and human values. So again, that's a value, uh, the alignment problem, sorry, the alignment problem, machine learning, and human values. That's by Brian Christian. It came out late last year, so it's a very recent book. Um, and the other book that, uh, that came out last year that we're going to explore, um, is, uh, called The Precipice, which, uh, The Precipice Existential Risk and the Future of Humanity. And this book, um, was written by Toby Ord, and it also came out last year. I'm trying to get the exact date for you, um... It was uh, in March of last year, March 24th. So these are both very recent um, compilations of these uh, types of issues that we're facing from a from a public problems, from a global public problem standpoint. These are the, in my opinion, some of the cutting edge challenges that we need to be thinking about. So I'm going to be sharing with uh, uh, sharing this with you and thinking through. Um, the challenges that these present together with you as part of some of the segments that we're going to be doing. So get some some speculative and science fiction and some cutting edge policy work at the alignment problem and the existential risks that we need to be or, uh, thinking about and organizing um, to think about the public problems that we face. All right, getting close to rambling. So um, that will do it today for today. Thank you for joining live. Those of you that were joining live, thanks again to those that are you following along, watching the video, listening to us on SoundCloud. Um, we'll be back uh, next week, which I believe is the 15th at our regular time, which is 6 a.m. on the West Coast and 9 a.m. on the East Coast. And those of you that are supporters, um, subscribers on Patreon will have the opportunity to join live if you're an early bird on Zoom and ask any questions and participate in the morning recording. All right. Well, have a wonderful Monday and thanks for following along.